Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about the intersection of design and policing. Joining us today as guest co-host is the guest editor of our latest issue of Design Museum Magazine, The Policing Issue. So joining us as co-host is Jennifer Rittner. Jennifer is a writer, educator, and communication strategist. And our special guest is Timothy Bardlevens, a design leader, cultural strategist, and diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant and writer. Together, Jennifer and Timothy wrote an essay for The Policing Issue that unpacks specific objects of policing and their impact. Before we dive in, I wanted to give a shout out to all our members. Thanks for being such an important part of the Design Museum. If you're not a member, join the museum. You'll get Design Museum Magazine, which is our quarterly publication about design impact in our lives. I know if you love this podcast, you'll love the magazine. It's filled with articles and case studies from design thought leaders and change makers from around the world. The issue we're chatting about today covers the intersection of design and policing. We have an awesome issue coming up on education, so check it out. Our members also get access to our monthly events. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on membership. And with that, on to this week's topic, the intersection of design and policing. In our recent issue of Design Museum Magazine, The Policing Issue, Jennifer Rittner writes, this issue is not calling on designers to fix the problem by policing, by collaborating with existing bureaucracies. Our writers do not believe that the industry can design think its way to a solution. Rather, we are hoping to reveal some of the ways in which models of dominant cultural supremacy frame design practices and have entrenched some of the same oppressive inequities produced by policing. I'm joined by Jennifer, the author of this quote, and our guest co-host this week, Jennifer Rittner. She's our guest editor for The Policing Issue, which is out now. She's also an educator, writer, advocate, and strategist. Jennifer taught graduate and undergraduate design programs at the School of Visual Arts. Her courses included design history, design for social change, and design in politics. Jennifer is the principal of the communication strategy firm Content Matters, where she helps creative businesses define their voice and learn how to communicate effectively with current and prospective clients. Jennifer designs to do great work with passion and pride. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. It's been wonderful working with you on this special edition of Design Museum Magazine. You've been so wonderful to collaborate with. And here we are. We get to keep chatting about it. <laughs> yes. The policing issue. I'm curious with your background and working in design. Was it always obvious that design played a role in policing? Or did that realization come to you later? Like, how did that kind of enter your mind? That's such a good question. No, I don't think that I thought about that from, you know, the beginning. I don't even know what the beginning really is, you know? I mean, like I, and I wrote about this in my letter, my intersection or my interactions with policing came fairly early. But I think if I can just sort of think about this through is like my, you know, my interactions with policing came before I interacted with the police, which is to say that I was very aware of being policed as a biracial woman with a black immigrant mother and a white Jewish father. Um, there is a way in which my family was being policed by, unfortunately, other family members. 
but also by educators, by community members, by neighbors, that there was a kind of policing that was happening very routinely in our lives. My mother was constantly being policed because of the way she used language. I had, you know, an unfortunate experience where I lived away from home for a few years when I was young, and I was very explicitly policed in the spaces where I was living um, and that I had to navigate. So I think that this question of policing for me and the ways in which it intersects with design isn't just about the civic institution of police, but how our systems, our institutions, our spaces are constantly setting up sort of attitudes of policing against people who are therefore marginalized by those systems. Where did the idea then come to develop a publication around this topic? I can tell my story of how I got connected <laughs> with you, but I'm curious where yeah. you were sort of like deciding, yeah, this is it's time to to put this together. So I had been really thinking about that for a few years. When I started teaching at SVA uh, in the Products of Design program, I had been really thinking about policing as what I what I thought really should be an area of concentration for the program. That when I started teaching a class called Design for Social Value which, as I always say to my students, is redundant because all design has social value. But that um, when we think about design for social value, what we're asking is how are values embedded in the things that are made? And so I think that it, there was just like this constant emerging thought for me around these institutions that represent or reflect our values and that policing, especially as we were really witnessing some of the the violations against Black bodies in particular by the police, it just seemed like design can look at that problem, right? Design can not, I don't, I don't know that design can fix it. I don't think the designers necessarily can fix it, but the design can look at it from the perspective of what are the values that are embedded in those practices and in those policies and in the behaviors, but also very much in those tools of policing, in the actual objects. And so I think the thought started to emerge to me as how do we build a conversation around this design and policing question that isn't just about how do we solve the problem, but how how do we actually understand the larger ecosystem? And uh, so when I started to write this, I don't know, it had really been in my head for several years before I sat down and actually wrote what you ended up seeing. Let's get into the issue and the magazine issue, because I would love to have you sort of paint a picture for our listeners about these intersection points of design and policing. And, and maybe the way to do that is to describe some of the the stories from the issue. Yeah. One of the first stories I wanted to bring in was from an actually an old friend, David Lamb, who I've known since we were in college. He was actually in law school at the time, and I was an undergraduate. And uh, when he went and worked for a law firm, he was doing, I believe, what was called public finance law. That is not my field, but I believe that's what it was <laughs> called. And he, you know, he worked in that field for a few years and then left. I thought very abruptly and became a playwright. And we had never really talked about what specifically had happened, but I think I just knew there was a story there. I knew, um, you know, we were friends for quite a few years. So I just, I knew that there was something under the surface that he was dealing with or, nav you know, sort of like just like unspoken 
So when I invited him to participate in this, he talked about realizing that the work he was doing was funding youth prisons in the Midwest and that this realization was, you know, I mean, it's such a cliche to say it, but like such a slap in the face to realize that he was actually doing work to imprison people like himself, right? People like us. And that, in fact, not only was it funding these youth prisons, but they were shipping young prisoners from Puerto Rico into the Midwest to, f- to populate those prisons in order to make jobs for the people who were living in those communities. And so one of the threads of this narrative that we're building is what are how complex systems can make invisible these actions that actually do harm right and he needed to kind of he needed to step away to not be another participant in that system because what had happened is that he was such a small part of it he wasn't responsible for the whole he wasn't responsible for shipping bodies from the island to here but his small part was allowing it to happen. And so we wanted to talk about how do we discover and reveal the small parts of larger systems that we are a part of? How do we become more aware of them? How do we ask the questions to become more aware of them? And then what happens when we decide we also have to step away? Because that's a very meaningful act. Wow. An amazing story. Backing up, I'm curious. I mean, it's such a complex topic. How did you even go about sort of thinking through who to invite to write into the issue and what facets to, it just seems so big. Even when I read the issue, I'm like, this is so big. It is so big. Well, uh, let me answer it this way by saying I felt like I could have invited 20 or 30 more people. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that the people who contributed to this issue are designers, writers, and thinkers that I have heard and have followed and have interacted with who I just knew could bring perspectives that I didn't think were being shared in other places, but that there are many, many, many other people out there who are doing this work and are thinking these these thoughts and engaging with these ideas, and I want to hear all of them. I mean, everything I hear, uh, I you know, it turns a little, it turns a key. There's some change. There's some new perspective. So I think that all of those perspectives are not only valuable, but necessary. But in terms of asking this particular group of contributors, you know, I uh, it was a little bit of I had to start somewhere. And this was the group I really wanted to start with. Um, Jamie McGee is someone I had been interacting with for a few years. She's an editor and a writer. And I just really respect her perspective and her thoughtfulness as a writer. Uh, And so I just thought, oh, if I invite her to do something on the future of policing, I just thought she would take an interesting approach. And she did. (laughs) She took a really interesting approach of investigating other people's thoughts on the the futures of policing. Um, AJ is a researcher that I had been uh, working with for a few years. And, you know, AJ just wants to break the patriarchy and she has no room for white dominant cultural supremacy, you know, and just wants to really go deep into the history of it. And Shanti Matthew and Stephanie Yim, you know, they are working in this public policy space. And I thought, I, you know, we have to have some perspective on what this looks like from a policy point of view. So each of these contributors was just bringing something very particular to the space that they are right, really functioning in. 
yeah, well, yeah, I love that you took a, a people-focused approach to even um, getting these perspectives in. It was so great. Yeah, Sam, I just want to say on that because I, that's thank you for saying that. To me, it was really important to just let people talk about these these issues. That again, I think for a lot of us, the thoughts are percolating. We just need the space, the time, and the opportunity to kind of put some meaning behind the ideas, right? To like. Yeah. Well, you you t- truly walked the walk in this whole process. Of, I know you had a vision and like wanted to hit these points, but your approach of asking people to share their perspectives yeah. and to think through what this means to them, I, the results, you know, are are incredible. What are you hoping that, the, you know, folks read this and what are you hoping that they take away from it or do next or... Yeah, the do next, that's always the big question, isn't it? So I I hope that they will think about their own practices and how policing is actually showing up for them as designers and design educators and design students, and both from the perspective of how they are perpetuating it, but also how they're experiencing it, right? How they are being policed and how how many ways design is enabling that to happen. How many parts of our physical designed environments, the objects that we buy or use, um, the ways in which we even walk in public, how much of that is impacted by our feeling of being policed and how design is just doing that work, um, how much a culture of policing is embedded in our processes. And what the doing is, I think there are some incredibly smart people who are developing plans for abolishing policing as we know it, for rethinking our civic institutions in the absence of policing, for thinking about safety as a concern that does not require policing, that reimagines even the very premise or definitions of criminality. Um, I think we need a, a radical rethinking about what is a criminal act and why we are, I think, so invested in penalizing rather than healing. You know, I think that if we come from a position of healing rather than harming, we actually will not need the police as much. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, it was on Twitter. I forget who, who wrote it, but it just was so poignant because it was like police don't solve, you know, aren't going to stop crime, right? Healthcare, vibrancy, community, education. And when you compare budgets, like where we put our money and our time and our resources, like it's just not there. And to your point around criminalization, like why are we criminalizing addiction? And does a cop need to deal with that or do we need medical Um, professionals, right? Yeah. What do social services actually look like that are, again, about healing, about bringing communities together, about keeping families together? I mean, look, I strongly believe that a weapon, in particular a gun, is a tool of the impotent. You don't need guns in a society that is well. And so the idea of police needing all of these weapons and all of this protective gear, that is a mark that we have gone wrong. Right. That the society itself is sick and design is not going to solve that by making those tools more ergonomic, um, more functional. (laughs) Empathy is not going to solve that problem. (laughs) Jennifer, wonderful to chat with you. Thank you for everything you did around this special issue. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. And I really I genuinely appreciate the platform. And I don't think it's for me. I really think that it's for all of the writers who contributed to this. That's This is really, this is their work. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everyone did such a, a great job. Listeners, to see more of Jennifer's work, visit Content Matters New York. That's contentmattersny.com. And visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on magazine and you can check out some of the articles from the policing issue and get your copy. And yeah, Jennifer, stick around and we'll bring Timothy Bardlevens into the conversation after a quick break. If you enjoy this podcast, why not be part of the live podcast recording? That's right. You get to see a live recording and ask your questions via Zoom to our guests. Each month, we host a live show, and the edited episode is aired in our weekly program. That's right. In the past, we've had conversations around equity in the workplace, sustainable design materials, and making social impact through graphic design. Our guests have included spoken word artists like architect Jadi Williams, Thought Matters' Jesse McGuire, and our very own Director of Learning and Interpretation, Diana Navarrete-Rakakis. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and become a member today to attend our next live show. See you there. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Timothy Bardlevins. Timothy is a design leader, cultural strategist, and diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist. And he's a writer. At Facebook, Timothy supports community relevance within the Facebook app, leading teams focused on participatory member experiences and ecosystem growth. He and Antoinette Carroll co-founded and design and the Access and Design Fellowship Program, which aims to cultivate and activate Black, Latinx, and Indigenous designers by providing tools, resources, and training to support them on their creative career journey. Timothy is an active member of Adobe's Design Circle. For Design Museum Magazine's policing issue, Timothy and Jennifer wrote the essay, Design for Harm, How Products of Policing Enforce Extrajudicial Practices of Control and Submission. Timothy designs to develop people-centric strategies with clear, actionable steps to increase diversity, create more inclusive spaces, and design more equitable systems. Timothy, welcome to the show. Thank you. That makes me sound super fancy. So I love this bio. You're doing <laughs> such cool stuff. Busy guy, for sure. Let's dive in. Uh, in a post for Emerge, you wrote something really cool. You wrote, design is one of the few disciplines that truly connects people, products, brands, and causes to the world. Dive into that for us. What does that mean? What should people take away from that? I, I love it. It makes me think of actually this, it, well, two pieces. One is, yeah, like in essence, we as designers are connecting people to the world, right? Like people don't know certain things exist sometimes until um, it's been created and put out in the world. Like I think about our role, especially at Facebook, you know, there are people who live in, let's say, Bodunk of nowhere. They've never heard about a thing and just so happened they joined a group or they saw a post or thing like that. And then suddenly their whole world completely changes. The whole world view completely changes. And so I think that like as designers, we all have this sort of power to be able to make those connections. But, you know, with that also, I talk a lot. Of, I've been talking recently about like it's delegated power. So it's power that people have given us consciously and unconsciously to be able to tell their stories, to create narratives, to like make those connections. So every time we connect someone to the world, we know that the world is actually delegating power to say, yes, you can do that. And so it becomes this really interesting cycle of we're helping folks discover, but we're also being given the license to facilitate discovery. Yeah, no, that's, it's making me think of uh, Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and you think about 100%. just like <laughs> this 
key responsibility that we have as designers to make these connections for people. And I, and I think that notion of, you know, delegating and delegated power is really an interesting one when it comes to design. Wanted to get your sense or your thoughts, like zooming back or rewinding of, you know, this, this issue of Design Museum Magazine was all about the intersection of design and policing. And how are you thinking about that intersection prior to, you know, Jennifer giving you a call and saying, hey, Timothy, let's work on this together? Honestly, I hadn't really thought about it. Like I've, I've been thinking about design and equitable design and like all those things within the space of like design itself. And like, I'm really, really close friends. Like, well, my best friend is Antoinette Carroll, who I know y'all have recorded with uh, previously. And so like, I know she's talked about systems and stuff and I, I deeply understand and think through systems, but for whatever reason, it just, it, I understood some of the history of policing. I understood design and systems, but I didn't really actually make the connection. And so when Jennifer reached out to me, I was like, am I the right person? But as I <laughs> dug into it and I read more, I was like, oh, okay, here are the connections. And then talking to Jennifer and AJ and like just us, you know, jumping on a call for like an hour that turned into, I don't know how long. And we were just like riffing off of each other. It was like, ah, oh, all these light bulbs just started popping up and flaring. I was like, oh, duh, I've already been thinking about this or duh, like we've already sort of had these conversations. It's really about like really making the connection. And so what it helped me think about is how to really solidify not so much the relationship with like the physical objects, but what the objects represented and how did that connect back to systems and back to design? Because I think that was the hard part was like, okay, handcuffs, like, but you know, when you say handcuffs, horse hobbles, and actually the thing is around like submission is like, oh, that's a totally different picture. And you think about like what submission actually means, especially for black bodies it all sort of like came together in this really interesting thing, like aha moment. It's a good segue because my first question to you actually was around the, the framework, because I think that you could have written that article from the perspective of, say, chronology and looking at the evolution of the, of the products of policing. And instead, you develop this very clear critical framework that said, actually, there are these like two categories. There's control and submission. And I'm just curious to hear you talk a little bit more about those two categories of thought, right? Not just how they came to you, because I hear you like we were, we were all talking and riffing, but you actually thought these are these two really like salient ways of of understanding this. Can you talk more about that? A lot of it actually came back to like, think about slave patrols and like sort of what was the job of a slave patrol. And that's what it was. It's like, it was control and submission. And ultimately the, the goal was to maintain property, right? It's to preserve property. And unfortunately, like in, in that instance, property was human bodies. But even today, if you think about policing, like it's the preservation of property that just happens to be buildings now. Like we didn't care about like, or some folks didn't care about the Black Lives Matter protest. They cared about the target that was ransacked. Right. And so like everyone's talking about the property. And so I think that's sort of what I realized like that was the deepest connection was all of these things. Like when you see that photo of National Guardsmen, you know, standing in front of a building and they're throwing pepper spray and things out or rubber bullets, it's all about submission. It's all about like, how do you get these people to submit to what we're saying and doing? When you think about people being sort of pulled over um, and guns pulled out on them for no reason at all, like it can't be for anything but submission, right? Like that is the thing. I am the master here. I am the dominant force and you should listen to me. You should submit. 
when I think about um, abusive relationships, like Black people have a are in a, an abusive relationship with an oppressive system in many ways, not just Black people, but a lot of Black and Brown folks. And a lot of it comes down to in abusive relationships, it's about submission and control. How do you get them to do what you want? And how do you get them to stay and stay in their place? All of it just started to make sense and connect together to me. And I'm actually a lover of threes. Whenever I write, if you sort of read enough of my writing, you'll see like I always use always use threes. And it was probably the thing that stressed me most about this essay is like I wanted a third thing, but I was like, no, these two are actually enough. And it's because they're so deep and powerful and visceral. Yeah, I completely agree. And I felt like having that framing actually allowed us to anyone, the writers, editors, all of us to kind of see how other things fit into those categories in really meaningful ways. And so once you have that framing, you can really see like, you know, the one that is really resonant to me is the perp walk and the way in which, right, we become complicit by feeding off of the spectacle of someone being forced to submit. It is built into the system that we are all complicit in the, the forms of submission. I wondered, Timothy, because it was one of my concerns early on, was that this material is so heavy and it weighs on us so personally and that we often use forms of art and design to escape the oppressions of these systems that we are in. And so I was really worried that inviting you and AJ and David and some of our other contributors to spend time thinking about this was kind of adding injury, adding to harm. And I just wonder how that felt for you. Did doing this project feel more oppressive or did it feel as though it was helping to kind of like catalyze or work through or did it offer something else? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because it's funny you say that because I, I remember also like mentioning that one of those causes, like, you know, how do we think about this? And I think for me, like, as you, as you know, Jennifer, like it took me a, a hot minute to get this together. It took me like, I may have missed one or six deadlines. Um, and I think part of it was because, you know, just because I do too much. But the other part of the thing is just because like I needed this space to wrap my head around it and like really understand and i think that was that was something that i was also trying to come from the perspective of is like for me how do i come from a place of trauma informed not trauma driven like i I sort of needed to like disconnect from that while also like relaying it back to the things i've seen experienced understand it helped me codify things i didn't realize that i i've been thinking about or that i didn't fully understand it's sort of like brought realization to. And so I don't think it exacerbated harm or trauma that I felt. I think it just helped me better define it. Like I now understand how to look at policing and things like policing and say, oh, what what is the actual sort of background to this? What is the motivation? What is the backdrop? Like, and also when people say, even the phrase like dismantle the police, I understood what it meant, but I didn't deeply understand the context behind it even though I was a believer in it, like it's, it was something about the context that I didn't fully land on. But after this, I was like, oh, I get what it means because to understand what dismantling the like policing means is to also understand like what is the history that's dismantled with it. Something that I've talked to people about internally at work is has been around like, you know, when it comes to equity work, sometimes we have this thing of oh, we need to we need to quantify it. You know, we have to like do it really quickly and show results and prove it and stuff. And it's like, or we have to 
you know, take certain steps so people feel comfortable. And I like I sort of list off like, hey, structures of our, our concepts of white supremacy, sense of urgency, right to comfort, progress is better than. So it's like, hey, progress is better than the the, um, the impact that it has, things like that. It's like, if we do equity work and is built on precepts or concepts of white supremacy, then it's automatically broken from the beginning. And so like rehabilitating or re you know reframing or redesigning policing is actually, I almost feel like impossible because its basis is built on white supremacy. And thus like it has to be dismantled and re sort of structured and rebuilt in a thoughtful way. And I think this sort of helped me better understand and be able to frame and, and discuss, articulate what that meant for me and why it was important. Yeah, I think that the, you know, policing and design, one of the things that they both do too well is they they move forward from here, wherever here is. And I think that as a result, they have a really hard time coming back to, I think, what you're articulating, which is root causes and some of those underlying, you know, philosophies or theories that actually are doing harm, right? And so, you know, one of the arguments is, well, this is what designers do. Designers make things better. They make things and they try to make things better. And I think there's a different question that you're asking, right? I mean, in a way, the question is, so if you're going to think about reform or change and you want to dismantle control, forms of control and submission, what would you build in in place of that? What does better look like? Yeah, um, it's funny. I was talking to this this article, actually. Um, it connected me with um, some folks in Canada, and it's they're part of the, um, it's like civilian oversight that they have in Canada. And so their, their police systems have this um, in each uh, state, or uh, I'm not sure the right phrase for it, but each area has their own um, group of folks. And we were having a discussion about this. And really, like a disinvestment um, or deinvestment in um, policing is a reinvestment in social work. So like crime, generally speaking, outside of like, well, crime usually can fall into two camps, poverty, mental health, right? Systems that keep people poor and they need things or they want things or they told they're less than, but then they see all these other, like Instagram, whatever the case may be, they see all this richness and they want to have what others have, like, because they come from a, you come from a place of lacking, drives crime, stealing, you know, trying to get ahead, finding ways to like gang membership is around like having poor infrastructure and not having like the resources you need. So bringing those resources together to figure out how to do it in one way or the other. Sometimes it's through crime, but it still happens, right? Or mental health, things like, you know, murders, deaths, things like that usually come from undiagnosed or unrecognized or just completely ignored mental health issues. And so I think that if you sort of, if we reinvested in social work, we had more social workers coming out and like coming out to these scenes, like for, you know, public disturbance and things like that, like would that change things? I mean, there's, there's still like state patrol and, you know, need like folks who are speeding and trafficking laws and things like that to have to uphold. And so maybe we do, like we still need police in that way most likely, but will we change how they do things? I remember just recently we had where the police officer went for their gun instead of the sun, there's um, taser. And they're like, oh, well, I mistakenly pulled this versus that. I was like, but this is plastic versus metal. How do you mistake those, right? Maybe we should rethink how the police belt is set up and the taser is always on the dominant side versus on 
the non-dominant side, would that change things a bit? Like, like, so there's all these pieces that go into it, but ultimately it's this question of like, if we reinvested into mental health services, into social services and sort of took policing and really focused the services versus looking at police as the, the um, catch all for everything, then maybe that would help a bit. Like I actually think of a, a random thing. I was watching Hoarders um, late one night because why not? I was on Hulu watching Hoarders. There was a, a family that was like really upset with each other. And there, and one of the things that like sort of was what made it so bad was because there was a daughter who was estranged and she kept calling her mother. Her mother wouldn't answer the phone because she lived in this home. It was very, you know, full of stuff. So she didn't know if things fell on her or what. So it was like, hey, can you just go and check and make sure she's okay? And of course the police showed up. And so because, oh, it was a wellness check. And so because they they did this wellness check and it was the police who showed up, they were like, how dare you call the police on me? They came at two o'clock in the morning, so on and so forth. And I wonder like, had it been a wellness check, but it was a social worker who came out, would it have been a bit different? It was someone who wasn't in a uniform, who's just like, hey, your daughter called. We just want to check and see if you're okay. Would that have completely changed the situation? Because there are a few health or uh, wellness checks that have happened that have resulted in people's deaths. Um, and so it's like, what are the things that we can do that remove some of these undue responsibilities where if people literally get their doctorate in how to figure out how to help manage and work with people? And we're asking a police officer who has however many weeks of training, weeks, not months, not years, to like fill in for folks who, who have to write dissertations just to understand a small piece of mental health issues. You know, Timothy, what I think is actually, um, I was listening to this really wonderful conversation with a group of Black female social workers. And actually, one of the things that they were pointing out is the ways in which even the social work system is built on punishment, that it often punishes, in particular, Black families and Black mothers. And so even that system, I think, has to self-interrogate, right? Like it has to ask, what are we doing to keep people healthy and whole as individuals, as families, as community members? And so I think you're right, I 100% am with you. And I want to hold out also the thought that we can't then turn social workers into an extrajudicial police force, which is very much, I think, an inclination. And I think there's this other part, and I wonder how you feel about this, because I am definitely more on the side of police abolition. But I think that when we look at the current state of policing, even within police, the police force, the system that polices the police is punitive, which is to say that police, when they have mental health issues, when they are struggling, when they're unsure about what they should do, they don't actually have anyone to turn to and they're disincentivized from seeking health or help or care. And so what would even happen if we were to say, let's actually take these emergency service workers and create healthy ecosystems which in within which they actually can be healthy and whole. And therefore, when they go out into the field, they can treat people with care right? That their first inclination is not punishment and to your point, control and submission, right? And I think there's all of those systems are based on this idea that we just have to constantly police, surveil and punish. So social workers are not going to do a good job if that's what they become trained to do, right? Even with the best intentions. But it, it sort of goes back to the root, right? Of course, police forces don't have the mental health services they need and the support they need because their job was never meant to be about people, right? Their job was never meant to be about protecting and serving humans. It was about uh, control and submission of humans and protection of property. 
I think as we look at all these things, this is like, usually I try to use different examples to help explain to people's systems and how systems work. Because I think if you say, hey, like, I think you, you put up a great point, Jennifer, right? Like you say, okay, well, there's a layer of policing and then there's the internal layer of issues that, have with, that they have within their systems, as well as the external layer that they play a part against the larger system. And then to dismantle one is to create or to sort of reemphasize a different discipline or profession or industry, but they are also operating with a system that also has issues. And so you have systems upon systems of just like harm um, that you have to start to figure out, okay, well, where, like, where's the root? Where do we start? And I think a lot of people, they get to a point where they're like, I'm going to throw up my hands. Where do we start? Because we, we can't redo everything, right? We can't just redesign America, can we? Um, or not even like outside of America, everything. And so it's one of those big questions where it's like, where do you actually start? And I think a lot of people really get sort of exacerbated. Or they like really, um, it's tough for them. It's tough for them to like, I think it's the same with the right to comfort, right? Like people, we say, hey, this is a racist system. Then they have to come to terms with every privilege that they receive that has contributed to, has been supported by, or advanced um, to help them get to where they are, especially as like, you know, white leaders, right? Um, and that's really tough for some people to really absorb and take in because they're like, well, no, I'm not like this. So why, how would you say that, you know, the system is this? It was like, well, just because you you're not like it doesn't mean you don't benefit from it every day. But I, I do think we need to challenge the systems. I do think we need to um, potentially even create new systems and over time replace the old ones. So maybe like there's a small force that is created that is done in a like does policing and social work in a different kind of way. And over 10 years or 15 years, that small force becomes larger and people are more hired into that force versus into the traditional forces. And thus, like you start to create this counterbalance to the point where one slowly goes away. Like we know it's not going to happen overnight. So if we phased it out, what would that look like? like? If we just focused on, let's say, Los Angeles, right? And we say within LA, LAPD, everyone knows about it, just like NYPD, everyone knows about that. So if you start doing this small thing, you make it bigger over time, how could it completely re rethink or redesign the entire system over the next 15, 20 years if there's dedicated effort to it? Because the other part is when you put these new systems in, people expect them to be like good just like that. And then people are like, oh, well, it didn't work. You know, it's been a year. It didn't work. Obviously, this is a failure. Let's go back to the old thing. And it's always some weird short amount of time. Like, you know, I, I think about, um, it was, I, I think about um, even Kamala Harris recently getting flack for not going to the border. I'm like, and no one's pointing out, Pence didn't go to the border until 2018. So it was like, okay, you're like two and some change years into the administration before you ever go down. She's barely been in her seat long enough to get it warm. And they're like, oh, well, you're not going to the border. There's like this weird sort of like this weird expectation people have around expediency. What is this? What is this instant gratification bias that we're all taught? Yeah, Timothy, I, that to me is such a huge part of the one of the challenges in design. If we take it, you know, out of the policing space and in the design space is obviously there's, you know, the focus on speed, scale and outputs. And so if all your focus or the principal focus is on those three things, we've got to get it done quickly. There's got to be a thing at the end of it and it has to scale out. Then you know, there's a kind of failure in the model. And I wonder if, you know, what does it look like for us to rethink what therefore design is doing in this space that isn't about doing it quickly, getting a thing out into the world that can be monetized and capitalized, right? And then, and also I think 
this notion that design has to sort of solve all the problems that it has to and and often does it creates more harm by sort of instituting learned helplessness so where you can have communities that might self-regulate and who come up with their own rules for how people engage and for how people provide care to one another and how they help each other thrive and where they actually establish rules that are meaningful that are not based on punishment right that that kind of self-regulation does take a long time to create, to be sort of self-correcting even. And instead, what you want, you know, design is saying, yeah, but we have to make a thing and we have to deliver it. And it has to has a set, have a set of rules around it. And it has to therefore be professionalized on the one hand and provide convenience on the other. And therefore, the people who are actually the most vulnerable and most at risk, they have no say. They're being delivered to. I'm big fans of you both. I really appreciate this conversation. The work you did on this issue is incredible. I hope our listeners have it in their hands and have read it, uh, but they can always grab it on our website. So thank you both. And thank you, Timothy, so much for sharing your expertise. I really appreciate it. Thank y'all. I appreciate y'all. Listeners, to see more of Timothy's work, visit ardlevins.com and we'll post a link. Okay, my favorite time of the week. Time to share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. This one, I haven't visited this park yet. It just opened and I don't live in New York City. So I will say the images impacted me. It's been so nice going outside, enjoying the warm weather. I'm loving my garden. So I'm very much in like the park and playground headspace. So my weekly dose is uh, a new public park in New York City. It's a floating park built on the Hudson River. It's called Little Island. I haven't been to it yet, like I said, but it looks amazing. It's built on these like concrete pylons that have these like big gray flowers um, emerging from the water. And then each one of those sort of holds a section of the park. It was designed by Thomas Heatherwick of Heatherwick Studio, who also designed the famous or infamous Hudson Yards vessel. Uh, the shape of the island was inspired by a leaf floating on water, which makes a lot of sense when you see the pictures. So there are about 280 of those concrete pylons holding up 130 or so concrete tulips, as they called them. And then on top of those tulips are the various sort of like parts of the park. And each one of those holds different amounts of weight. Uh, it's 2.4 acres. So lots of green space, amazing views of the city. It also has performing arts areas, places to eat. Looks like they're planning a lot of really cool free events. Uh, this is just my favorite kind of spatial design. It's like futuristic, but it's very natural and fits into the environment. And really it looks like it was designed, you know, for the human scale, right? Um, I just, I love all the modern, like, but whimsical elements throughout the park. So. Seems like it's a great time for a new park uh, as things are opening up and the weather's really nice. So if you're in New York, check it out. I can't wait to check it out myself. Check out Little Island in New York City. Oh, wow. I'm to go excited check it out. to go and see it. Yeah. 
I am I am so ready for this weather. So yeah, the one that I, I've really been the most moved by is design in a small D sense. There's a podcast called All My Loving Relations, and it's hosted by Matika Wilbur and Desi Small Rodriguez. And recently, they did a three part episode about Hawaiian sovereignty, and in particular about the the fight to secure the Mauna Kea from uh, uh, from colonizing in particular from corporate colonization. You know, I think this question of Hawaiian sovereignty and the ways in which we understand the rights of communities to hold space for themselves and to determine what their rights are and and uh, how the historic treaties, although the the case of Hawaii is not a matter of broken of a broken treaty. Um, it's more complex than that. But I think listening to indigenous people talking about the spaces that they hold, the spaces that they claim, what it means to be allowed onto or invited onto ancestral lands, um, and how design is sometimes very much getting in the way of various liberatory and sovereignty movements. So I think that it's a podcast that's not about capital D design, but very much about understanding how to listen to people when they talk about the things that they need and they want. And so that is All My Loving Relations, which is a podcast. And if I could add one more, which is along the lines of an indigenous practice, there is a jewelry line that is absolutely delightful. It's actually run by what's called the Bee Yellowtail Collective. And they've been doing a particular line within that larger indigenous um, designers collective with Native Works and the Chief Seattle Club, in Seattle, Washington. Uh, it's beyellowtail.com. And the particular uh, line that I was looking at is Native Works. And I just think that the jewelry is contemporary, but it is it is just leaning back into traditional ancestral practices. And I think that this marriage of what tradition can look like in contemporary design, when again, you are really looking at the, the practitioners who are just going deep into these uh, indigenous practices um, and forms of representation. It's just gorgeous. And plus, the packaging is crazy gorgeous. Nice. I am like keeping every box. Oh, yeah, I've bought a few pieces. I keep every box because just unwrapping everything and feeling the material and just feeling the care, the love that goes into the making of these um, beautiful works. Oh, can't wait to check it out. Both those, the podcast, yeah, and the jewelry. Thank you for both of those. That's awesome. And yeah, listeners, if you have a weekly dose of good design and you want to share it and then have me share it with our listeners at large, tweet or share it with me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. Jennifer, thank you again so much for being here. This is such a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That's our show. I want to again thank Jennifer Rittner and Timothy Bardlevins for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. Remember to rate this podcast and leave a review. That's so helpful for other people to find our show. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And we have an awesome weekly email newsletter. 
so you can always be in the know of what's coming up at the Design Museum. You can sign up for that on our website as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and additional editing support by Emily Roberts and additional research by Tanya Chabla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here and we'll talk again next week.